What's up, everybody? Welcome to Building Our Power. This is Gabby. And KT. And we're back with another episode. You like to hit us up, hit us up at Building Our PWR on our social media platforms. Thank you, everybody. Uh, last week, who gave donations uh, out of the blue? Thank you so much, guys. We are going to the grocery store right after this episode, and we'll be getting a few items from the grocery store and putting it in the community bridge. Full show. All right, guys, let's get into the reading. We're at the bottom of page 155. The first currency crisis stimulated by Italy's inflationary policies initiated in 1925 resulted in the stabilizing of the lira by decree in 1927. A controlled deflationary period followed, effected through the banking systems, which the regime influenced by decree or advice. Private interests protected themselves from totally destructive competition by using the regime as reference. After the Great Depression and the international rise of fascist states by default, refinements in its simple currency control methods were introduced. The replacement of competition with cooperation among the private interests became more standardized. The Germans realized that inflationary currency control would have little real effect on the expansion of heavy industry without also controlling the capital market. Direction of investment was also a key factor in the arrangement. Again, the regime functioned as a centralizing, mitigating influence. Real wages began to fall and industrial production rose. Considered against the gross national product, investment rose 25% by 1937 in Germany. The same 25% figure held true for Japan in the middle and late 30s. From 15% of GNP at the lowest point of the Great Depression in fascist Italy, annual average investment in the industry rose to 19 or 20% in the years 1936 to 40. Because Italian fascism was already established when the entire Western capital market banking system failed, there was a sizable amount of quasi-government ownership. The, quote, Industrial Reconstruction Institute established by the regime was quite simply a financial institution, a huge bank. It also indirectly owned or influenced large sectors of the nation's heavy industry. A further hint at an upper thrust of the middle classes to fill in sections of the traditional ruling class destroyed by the forces of the business cycle. In general, the developments and experiments in controlled capitalism resulted in a concentration of economic power in the large monopolies. The crisis in German foreign exchange murdered the small businessman. Small agricultural units tended to disappear because of low wages, low consumption, and large increases in the arts of agricultural production. The necessity for government intervention increased as the interests of the private elites generated new tensions. The breakdown of the big industrial pattern into sections, the regulation or elimination of real competition except, of course, for labor when it was short, and the control of labor organizations basically comprised the whole of the new fascist, quote, economic arrangement which attempted to reduce the vast strata of classes and class interests of the pre-existing state of the economy to just the two principal classes, the haves and the have-nots. 
The psychosocial dimensions of fascism become quite complex, but they can be simplified by thinking of them as part of a collective bargaining process carried on between all the elites of the particular state with the regime acting as arbitrator. The regime's interests are subject to those of the ruling class. Labor is a partner in the arrangement. At the head of any labor organization in the fascist state, there is an elite which is tied to the interests of the regime and consequently tied also to the economic status quo. Mm. The trappings of this pseudo-mass society are empty, cheap, spectacular leisure sports, parades where strangers meet, shout each other down, and often trample each other to death on the way home. Mass consumption of worthless supersuds or aspirin. Ritualistic, ultra-nationalistic events on days to glorify the idiots who died at war or other days to deify those who sent them out to die. A mass society that is actually a mass jungle. At its core, fascism is capitalistic and capitalism is international. Beneath its nationalist ideological trappings, fascism is always ultimately an international movement. Many of the fascist regimes that failed or lacked thrust, the Belgian Rexits, the Dutch NSB, Japan's arrangement, Romania's Iron Guard, were all essentially too imitative and inflexible. Even the totalitarians must be subtle and responsive if they are to survive. Peronism was imitative, as was Brazilian integratistas. They were emulating their colonial masters in the USA. So one fascist regime falls to another, more efficient fashion regime. Two factors must be seriously considered when analyzing the two largest fascist states in Latin America, Brazil and Argentina. Their dependence on foreign trade and their neo-colonial status, which involves dependence on, quote, foreign investment. When exports fall, as they did during the Depression of the 30s, the value of the national currency must also fall, and it follows that imports automatically decrease. The battle to balance payments begins, necessitating massive governmental intervention, which leads inexorably to inflationary domestic economic policy and sometimes to a conflict of interest with the ruling class of the parent nation. Concern for balance of payments determines internal economic motives. The deficit financing, the attempt to control incomes by controlling labor, Price-fixing, government stockpiling of agricultural surpluses, positive direction of investment, and the balancing of the interests of the dualistic economy's elites can all be pointed to as evidence of an attempt to employ the centralist controls that characterize the classic fascist arrangement. The first fascist regime of Brazil was headed by Vargas. It lasted from 1930 to 1945. Coffee exports formed 70% of the nation's GNP prior to Vargas' takeover and the Depression. When international trade, especially in agricultural goods, collapsed, Vargas was forced to attempt experiments with the so-called closed economy. New internal markets had to be created, investments and motives relocated, industrialization attempted. But all of this planning, though successful to an extent, was still basically imitative and did not accurately reflect the realities of the nation's inability to accumulate capital. 
It is extremely important not to confuse the three phases of fascism when studying Latin America. The second phase, in power but not secure, is the really significant part of the whole fascist episode. Regime after regime has failed to increase internal demand or unseat the traditionalist landed elite in favor of the small industrial interests. This means a permanent dependence on foreign trade and investment for machine tools for weapons to control the people's movements and for raw materials to feed their light industries and flea markets. Consequently, we see these areas as the most glaring dichotomy of socioeconomic injustice. In the shadow of their plush beach resorts, which attracts degenerates from all over the Western world, literally within rifle shots, live the people who service these vacation resorts, complexes, in disease-infested, corrugated tin shanties on hillsides constantly ravaged by mudslides. A strange combination of the first two phases of fascism. Without the massive military aid of the United States, Gestapo death squads, and the most intensive rightist terror, the guns of liberation would by now have certainly filled the streets and forests with the blood to the horse's brow. It's important never to lose sight of Latin America's neo-colonial status. A victory for the People's Liberation Armies entails a victory over international capitalism and especially a victory over their colonial masters. The puppet regimes of these areas cannot move firmly into phase three of the fascist arrangement for two reasons. The people are willing to use arms and are learning to use them more effectively. And because the regimes are imitative, not indigenous, they do not reflect the real interests of the nation's elite, but rather the interests of the ruling elites of the parent imperial nation, the USA. Germany attempted to rearm, deflate its currency, and at the same time continue to meet the war-swollen demands of the heavy industry. It finally fell of its own weight. The fascist economic arrangement failed under the pressure of war in Germany, in Austria, in Italy, and Japan, as it later failed in the first regimes in Brazil and Argentina. The principal failing was very much the same that brought down laissez-faire. The capitalist business cycle cannot be controlled. Inflationary spasmodic attacks, regional recession and depression pursue capitalism in all its forms like a nemesis. Break its spirit, reduce its top-heavy bureaucratic backbone to jelly. Inflation at first, the key to regeneration after an extended collapse, ultimately leads to the complex problems that seem to be beyond regulatory remedy. To control it by compressing wage demands always turns out to be politically unsound. Class consciousness in Germany was better developed than in any other European nation before and after the fascist takeover. So consciousness alone is obviously not the factor that determines which way a disintegrating society will develop fascist or socialist. The task of defusing the people's labor movement and balancing it in favor of the few special individual heavy industrial firms, Weisschwerk, Hirschman, Goring, Krupp, and the vital interests of the increasing important chemical industry, IG Farben, etc., fell to the regime-sponsored labor front. 
Its first attempt to appease labor came in the form of slightly improved working conditions. Meaningless slogans like strength through joy, which echoed the Anglo-American work ethic. Even after the forcibly suppression of the Vanguard Party by the Gestapo in the first few years of the regime, the potential political power of labor, due to the workers' importance in the production of heavy aramins, was such that really effective measures for controlling it were not devised throughout the tenure of the Third Reich. Wage increases couldn't be avoided. Rigorous state controls replaced mid-repression and propaganda only after Sutherland Affair of 1938 and the accentuated armaments drive of 1939. Because wages could not be successfully held down, the individual firms were after profits. Bear in mind, consequently, they devised many indirect incentives designed to attract a shrinking labor market. Measures were made to limit the movement of laborers from place to place and other factors of production were openly channeled into the arraignment sectors of stringent government intervention. All idealistic ideological pretenses were dropped. Racism and interests of military-industrial complex formed the economic and psychosocial motives of the society and shook it apart. Okay. I just wanted to get a lot of that reading out the way before we do a little bit of discussing. Um, kind of go go off on a little tangent here. They were talking. He was talking about Brazil and how you know a lot of these fascist countries that aren't the West, they're still kind of under and following the lead of the the West. And because of that, they aren't able to fully reach fully fascist potential as far as, you know, pretty much. They're still dependent. Because they're dependent. Yes. Financially and. Economically. Economically, yes. So that is a good thing. And that means that in those places, you know, there is more. There is more. Um of a chance of the people there to be able to actually do something because it's not a strictly, totally independent state. Um, he was talking about the uh, the poor there in Brazil. I remember there was a... When they had them Olympics in Brazil. You remember that? Mm-hmm. And uh, they protested. A bunch of people went They out. protested. But you know that, you know, they have all them black people living in those huts. In those shacks. Yeah. If you saw that Michael Jackson music video, they don't care about us. There. People been living there for decades. Yep. Probably centuries now. And when the Olympics came, oh, no, we're not going to do nothing about these poor people. No, we're not going to give them somewhere to live. We're not going to do that. We're just going to put up a, a, a bridge and a wall, a concrete wall, so that you can't see it. Yep. But that's been going on forever. And... You know, they've had the help of the West, though, to kind of keep those people at bay. But but I feel like, I don't know, I just feel like it'll, those people, they, they might have a better chance than us. Because, like, we're literally in the imperial core. It's going to be way harder for us to fight and get liberation here in the inside. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. No, I agree. 
Because we're kind of like from the very get go, even though like people in Brazil, I'm sure, are also drinking the Kool Aid, so to speak, from the get go. Um, we're kind of in the spot where we are taught that at school we don't have any communities. We don't have this. We don't have like we're we're basically like you said we're the, in the Imperial Court. We're literally right here and everything. It's like thinking you're going to change things from the inside out. And it's just not possible. I mean, it's it's possible that liberation will come, but it's not finna be. It's it's gonna be a gazillion times harder, right? Uh, because I mean, we're right next door to the people. Like we're right in the same house, the same as, apartment as complex. The yeah. Um, what else was he talking about? He was talking about. Um, he was talking about inflation. To me, that's interesting. I think it's really interesting how he's, like, talking about this. And, like, we're currently pretty much going through that. Like, we have this huge amount of inflation that's going on, and people are under-consuming, per the United States government. Like, they're under-consuming. They're not being able to feed their families. They're not being able to do this. They're not being able to do that. And, basically, we still have people thinking, well, you know, if they raise prices on our... On our um income, then inflation would be even worse. So we just we can't have it. Well, I mean, it shows you that inflation is a tool used by the government. Correct. Yeah. In order to regulate the economy, which which so which it's is not ne- it's not necessarily a work of science. It's a work of just that's just the mm-hmm. nature of economics. It's just the nature of money. It's just the nature of psychology of man. No, it is literally a tool used by governments to help boost, quote unquote, boost the economy and and get more profits. Um, what do you we, say? We see that we we've we've heard the thousand stories now of all these industries that are getting like two hundred percent profit increases. Yeah, and uh, eggs. I'm, yeah. He called it a psychosocial dimensions of fascism. I like how you talk about consciousness alone won't be the the liberation that we need because the folks in Germany, the laborers, were conscious. But what did the state use? The state used what they call it, uh, controlled opposition, uh, called the labor front, whose job, again, was to appease labor. And come up with in slightly improved working conditions, aka reforms. A pizza. <laughs> or reforms and meaning slogans like strength through joy. Mm-hmm. And um again, like we talked like I talked about two weeks ago. That is the job of these organizations. That is the job of these unions in America. Same thing. Same thing. What What is the smallest amount of anything we can do to get y'all to shut up and go back to work? What is the smallest crumb I can give you so that I can continue to appease the corporations at, while we work together and we don't tell you about it? You can't trust these. You can't. You cannot trust anything that has been that has been uh, endorsed by the state. Anybody who has any type of correlation to the state. Anybody has any type of correlation to a uh, corporation. Any type of ties to a corporation. Any type of funding by a corporation. You cannot trust them. Their interests are diametrically opposed to anything we are trying to do. Mm-hmm. Nonprofits. <clears throat> 
All right. The German economy was already in ruins by the time the Reich expanded into Russia. The expansion itself was a symptom of the economy's death-directed lack of discipline. Its own internal contradictions and deceits destroyed it. An industrial military-based economy must expand to live, must forcibly balance trade in order to su- its favor to survive. No amount of logic or dissent can influence the men who have vested interests in the life of such an arrangement. Only organized violence and armed struggle could have stopped them before they lost their minds and destroyed so many lives. The counterterrorism of the socialist parties, vanguard, and the proper direction of the people's consciousness could have been changed the whole course of history over the last 50 years. Once fascism moves into its third phase in contrapositive mobilization, the psychosocial antithesis of lower class mobilization, insinuates itself technologically with weapons and control of the means of the people's subsistence limiting their vision to their own personal short-term interests with propaganda and empty promises quote only he who does does not fear death of 1000 cuts can then unseat the fuer the united states was not existing in a vacuum when fascism first swept the western world on the heels of the first two great depressions my reading of history indicates that the us was a greater economy economic social and political crisis after the 1929 stock market crash than any other Western country, excepting possibly Germany. The same trends, the same experiments, the same internal battles were fought by the same forces for the direction of the nation's economy. The extreme economic crisis of the early 30s brought working class revolutionary consciousness to its very peak. All serious commentary on this period reflects a profound lack of confidence in the workability of capitalism. This avalanche of criticism came from sectors of the middle and right-oriented thinkers, as well as the left, just as it did in Italy, Germany, Romania, and other fascist storm centers. But of course, the middle and rightist intellectuals were thinking in terms of a new direction for capitalist growth, not in its abolishment, a quote, New Deal. Much like those of Nazi, fascist, and fangless Europe, no serious or honest student could miss the likeness. FDR was a fascist. His stated, documented, congratulatory messages to Mussolini were not simply diplomatic gestures. Joseph Kennedy's advice to England to surrender to Germany's expansion did not necessarily originate in Kennedy's mind. He was official ambassador of the U.S. to England. There was positive mobilization of workers and the lower class and a highly developed class consciousness. There was indeed a very deep economic crisis with attendant strikes, unionizing, lockouts, break-ins, call-outs of the National Guard. The lower class was threatening to unite under the pressure of economic disintegration. Revolution was in the air. Socialist vanguard parties were leading it. There was terrorism from the right, from groups such as Guardians of the Republic, the Black Legion, Peg Leg, white type stormtroopers, and hired assassins who carried out the beginnings of a contrapositive suppression mobilization. Under the threat of revolution, the ruling class, true to Marxian theory, became all the more co-optive and dangerous. FDR was born and bred in, in this ruling class of families. 
His role was to form the first fascist regime, to merge the economic, political, and labor elites. Governing elites, corporate state, fascism. His role was to limit competition, replace it with the dream of cooperation, to put laissez-faire to rest, and initiate the acceptance of government intervention in economic affairs. A great many of the early trends of American history prepared the way for the ultimate success of fascism in its highest form. From the very beginning of America's existence as an independent nation state, there were localized labor organizations that attempted to further the interests of their class by influencing the social, political, and economic life of the new nation. It wasn't until the second half of the 19th century that labor took on a national character and began to make its presence felt in the economic sense of the nation. Even then, it was resisted by violence of employers and government working together. Marx's definition of history as a broken, twisted, sordid spectrum of class struggles is substantiated by American labor history. The earliest significant struggles between labor and capital began in 1790 on the East Coast in cities like New York, Philadelphia, and Baltimore, where mutual aid craft societies attempted to gain higher wages and shorter working hours. Resistance from the employers and their backers in the government to these malorganization efforts forced the establishment of the first trade unions. The Philadelphia Printers Union, the New York Typographical Union in 1974, Journeyman Cabinet and Chairmakers of 1796. The first wage strike was organized by the Society of Journeyman Courtwainers, Shoemakers of Philadelphia. It lasted two or 11 weeks in 1799 and was broken by right-wing terrorist activity. Okay, let's go back up to that FDR stuff real quick. Because FDR is, they'll call him, he's probably the second best president. Yeah, like even even if you look at people like who supported Bernie Sanders and quote unquote uh, democratic socialists, they would say that FDR is one of the best presidents and he created the New Deal. So, of course, he was one of the, the best people to help us out. Yeah. And they're all like, we need a new deal. We need a new, new we deal. Need, we need a green new deal. We need a yeah. new deal. Um, something that's interesting. Let's go back to that. So in the 30, like the 20s, stuff like that. Apparently, it was a lot of unrest. A lot of the workers were like, oh, uh-uh, uh-uh, this is not going to work. Mm, maybe this capitalism thing ain't working because these working conditions are horrible. We're working amongst the rats, folks losing limbs, they losing eyeballs. This is not going to work. People of all, all walks of life, the right and the left. Interesting. So FDR is like, I got some bad ass. I'm going to give all these little... um." reforms and i'm gonna redo all these industries we're gonna monopolize a lot of these industries and um you know we're gonna use governmental influence to you know get the get the economy back up working we're gonna give y'all all these social programs we're gonna give you all this all that interestingly enough not surprising black people didn't really get much if anything they, they actually got excluded if anything and, you know, they use little language and stuff like that. But who knows what would have happened if that stuff did not happen? Because I'm sure that caused a significant rift in 
racial relations even more so than there already was because you know probably around that time you had some white people that was like oh okay well maybe the black people are okay you know maybe we all fighting together we all need to get together but as soon as them checks start Mm -hmm. falling it's over with FDR is great. FDR is great. We ain't black people. We not listen to y'all. The housing situation. That's the only thing I'm thinking about. Yeah. Like, imagine during that time, you got all of that crap happening, right? You're dying in minds, pretty much. You're getting sick every two minutes. You got all of this stuff. It's a depression. So you're super duper hungry. Your family's hungry. Everything is happening like that. And then all of a sudden, the United States president comes up and he says, hey, you know what? Your family, your white family, deserves to have housing. And we're going to make sure that all white people, pretty much, even the poor, can go ahead and get them a house. That was imagine, great. Imagine that. That's great. That, that even more divided, like, that. I feel like that was obviously a way... Yeah, to divide people who may think that, okay, well, maybe we do got a chance to do something with them. It may. It's just like now. Like, I mean, obviously, we didn't get no new deal. We actually didn't get shit. But <laughs> just people being able to go outside. Yeah. They forget. Yeah. They don't care no more. It's just that You, you got a house. You got a house. We don't care no more. I don't have no reason to be in no community with y'all. I got a no. house. Bye. America's great. Who cares if COVID is still raining? And I don't have no, I don't have no reason to be caring about what these black folks said. Black Lives Matter. I don't give a fuck no more. Nope. I can go outside. I can go to work. I can continue to live my life. And uh, that's that's beautiful. It's beautiful because FDR was able to do what all these other people have been trying to do, and he didn't get no flack for it. Because he wasn't overt with it. No, and they made it, they turned it into this, like, I'm thinking about it now, it's sort of like a liberal thing. It made it seem like, oh, this is wonderful, it's some socialist programs. When really, it was the bare fucking minimum. And even then, it wasn't the bare fucking minimum for anyone besides white people. And it wasn't even a bare minimum for them because now look now. What do we have? The last thing that's left is Social Security and, and that by the day. In Medicare, they keep pushing it. In the Medicare, age yeah. up. The, the age is going up and up and up. So majority of us probably won't even see that. That's like the last thing that's left. Um, and that stuff, it had, a, it had a reason. It had a goal. It wasn't to help people. It was to shut people up. And it was for people to not demand a fully liberated country but they said here's the thing this is what cracks me up if we look at it like now they say that it's it's the republicans that are doing this they're taking away your rights they're taking away your social programs the republicans why do we first of all why do we need social programs to begin with like can we start there? Why do I need a social program? Why are you so... Why do the Democrats love social programs so much? Because they care about the people, right? They care about us? No. They want us to be free? They they want us to have... They don't want us to starve? 
No, they want they want a controllable mass of people. They do not want you angry enough to start storming shit and tearing shit up because you ready for real change and real liberation. This is these programs are great silencing tools. They're great low you to sleep tools. Even even uh, Trump's little money that we got. Remember, like whenever everyone's like Trump is horrible, Trump is horrible, and then all of a sudden he gave us just a, just a, a little inch of money, and then uh, people were. Like, well, Trump ain't so bad. Trump the one that gave us a check. Trump, Trump gave the one gave us a check. Yeah, like, it's, a, it's interesting how easy and quick it is to close up any type of anything against the government. Well, that reminds me like of, like, people that are or have been in abusive relationships. Mm-hmm. And it's like when you're just, when you're in shit all the time and it's just horrible all the time, that one sliver of, of niceness is like, oh, well, I guess they aren't that bad. I mean, I guess, yeah. Well, I guess things will get better. And, I, you know, I guess there's some hope because they wouldn't do this if they didn't care about me. And then it goes right back to it. And then two years, four years later when it's time to vote, well, I guess maybe this time if I vote this time and they said they're going to do it. And I mean, he did maybe, say he was for trans people, you know. No, he is saying that trans people need this and trans people they need that. He hasn't made any type of plans because they're Republicans. But he is saying he's for the trans people. Now, right now, stuff feels getting bad, and he's not really doing nothing about it. But he said when he gets back up in there <laughs> and we get them, the other Democrats, he said he will change. He said he will not hit me no more. For the first half of his, for the first what? What was it? Was it half or six months? We're talking about Biden. For the first half of his stuff, he had... Democrats in every single spot. Mm. I'm screaming, but he had Democrats in the House. He had Democrats in the Senate. He had Democrats him. What got passed? What got done? None. And they'll tell us, we don't know anything about, you don't know nothing about politics. You don't know how politics work. Then then it needs to be changed. If, if, you're, <laughs> if you're telling me that you got Democrat, Democrat, Democrat in all places that apparently they're supposed to be in, and you still can't make any changes towards the greater good of our economy, of the people here, it just tells me something's wrong. But all it takes is two Republicans in a, in a, in a, in a room. And it's, and it's always a Republican then, down in Texas. Some judge. Some random judge. A judge in Texas stopped us from getting them student loan cancellations. You remember that? Remember that? Some a judge in Texas judge. stopped everybody from having to wear the mask in public places. I, I just think it's so interesting. Anyways. We're going to run short. But it, I, just, oh, I just love how he broke that down. Yeah. Because because people will tell you if I if you say FDR was a fascist, if you say that online right now, they'll be they'll they'll lose their shit. We'll be we'll be viral in ten minutes. If you say FDR was a fascist, girl, them folks gonna get so upset. But what it what it, what was his goal? His goal was to keep everything going back to this status quo, and he was able to unite the whites again. Yeah, delaying to rest. Of the laissez-faire, the shackling of Adam Smith's invisible hand really began during the Civil War in the U.S. The petty bourgeois dream of countless contending private proprietorships somehow managing a mellifluous blending of private and state interests. When long-range plans could still be made by wage workers to be the proprietors one day became a nightmare with the advent of the mass manufacturing process. At the opening of the Civil War, the U.S. ranked fourth among the world's industrial states behind the English Empire, the German states, and France. 
1870, the U.S. industrial manufacturing plant had doubled the value of its products. The number of factory workers drawn out of other sectors of the economy caused the industrial workforce to nearly double during the same period. Improvements in the arts of agricultural production drew some workers from the countryside and sent others westward towards the closing frontier. The craftsman lost his privileged economic position with the appearance of newly invented mass production machinery. This new machinery and factory setup in general made individual workers more expendable and made it possible to reduce their share of the profits. By the mid-1890s, the U.S. was producing one-third of the world's manufactured goods and was on its way to become first among the world's industrial states. The expansion of the U.S. industry out of the demands of civil war involved a complex concentration of several violent and predictable capital mandates. The old traditional sector of the landed aristocracy was broken. Machine tools, transport, and communications boomed. The basis of the industrial state and, of course, an industrial elite, when raw materials, coal, iron, and other ores are not lacking, the price or value of labor shrank, and the drive towards monopoly accumulation was firmly established. Okay, that's the top of uh, 166. It was uh, the top of 166. Uh, real quick, the, the capital mandates. The old traditional sector of aristocracy has to be broken. You need machine tools, transport, and communication to boom. The price of labor must shrink and the drive towards monopoly cap accumulation. And that's that's when it just started going crazy. That's, that's when it took a whole new level. And uh, we did an episode on why capitalists ended slavery. You can check that one out. Um, we did that about two years ago, actually. Check that one out, and um, yeah, definitely. Let us know what you think about this. Um, this part of the reading is a lot of reading, a lot of history, but it's good, great, great to know like the history of fascism in other places, so we can tie it to you know our lives. And again, like just try to get an understanding. And, and and stop making all these these uh, bogus-ass analysis about how fascism is new and this is that and that is that. Do some reading, please. Thank you very much. Well, again, thank you, everybody, who has listened to the uh, podcast for your support, for your love, those who have donated so that we can put money, put food in the fridge. All right, guys, uh, hit us up on Building RPWR. If you have any comments, concerns, this has been Gabby and KT. This has been Building Our Power.